0: G'day. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Osha Ginsberg, and this is Better Than Yesterday. It's, what day of the year is it? Oh my goodness. How do we get to this? It's the ninth of January. It's Bachelor Day. It's the day The Bachelors premieres. Oh my goodness. The Bachelors is on tonight. Unbelievable. It's such a great series. I really hope you get into it. It's so different to any other thing we've ever done. It takes the conversations that we started with Brooke Blurton's season and it just goes to a whole new level with it. And it's just a thrill. It's an absolute thrill. I can't wait for you to see it. It starts tonight on Network 10. You can, If you're on holidays, you can stream it on 10 Play. That's how you watch it. Watch it on your phone. Watch it wherever you are. But it's so good. It's easily the best one we've ever made, and it's it's on tonight. If you are, however, at uh, Davis Station in Antarctica, where David Knopf was uh, stationed, I don't know if you can get 10 Play. You might, because it's an Australian territory. You're probably not geo-blocked. But that's who we're speaking to today, David Knopf. He was... Um, the fella in charge of the Australian Antarctic Research Station during COVID. is a heck of a story about 537 days of like mega isolation. It's a great show. It's one of our best of shows. One of the shows, the team who makes the show picked as one of our best shows of the year. So you're listening to the good stuff right here, but we do have to pay that team. So I'm going to have to play some ads. And in a moment you'll hear from David Knopf.
1: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: Hitting rock bottom is, is almost an empowering moment where you go, okay, I've, I've hit rock bottom, and then, right, right, I've been to the limits, and, I, and I'm still here. I didn't make you know some really bad decisions still here and great and now I've got so much more experience because I've been to rock bottom and then you can teach others about it and that's what I see the best part about my story was about okay if other people can learn from this experience where I got it right where I got it wrong just how tough it was and that can then help future leaders learn from it and, and do a better job or even just be aware of how tough it can be when you get in a situation like that, then that's that's something and there's a way out of it.
0: That is author and former head of the Australian Antarctic research station, David Knopf. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is Better Than Yesterday. <laughs> Let me tell you about my guest today. David Knopf is an author and Antarctic expedition leader. He specializes in remote leadership, hostile environment diplomacy, and resilience. And that's lucky. (laughs) He served with the Australian Army, including diplomatic postings in both Pakistan and Iraq. When the COVID-19 pandemic broke out, David was the team leader at the Australian Antarctic Division's Davis Research Station in Antarctica, tasked with keeping the station running through the darkness of the Antarctic winter. What was supposed to be a 365-day rotation for the team of 24 turned into a 537-day stay. David led the team as they navigated the stress, the tension, the understandable flare-ups between people, navigating good mental health, navigating how to keep their morale up, dealing with the anxiety of not knowing how long they would have to stay there and not knowing when the ship was coming to relieve them. David has written all about the experience in his extraordinary book, 537 Days of Winter, which is out now. It's well worth the read. It takes in emergency medical evacuations on Christmas Eve, stifling isolation, oh, and playing dress-ups. You can follow David on Instagram. He's at 537 Days of Winter, all one word. Well, A, look, it's fantastic um, to speak to you today, David. Uh, what what part of the world are you in right now? I'm in South Melbourne these days. Okay. Now, uh, we're recording this in August of 2022, and um, it was – 10 degrees when I took Wolfie to daycare today. I'm like, oh, fuck, that's cold today. Cold day today, buddy. We've got to dress you up. What's cold? What's a cold day for you now?
2: So, I haven't said this. So, I've obviously been to Antarctica a few times. It's pretty cold down there. But being wet and cold back here on a, on a drizzly Melbourne morning can be. Not as bad, but a more miserable bad, because I don't think you're, you're as prepared for it. You get caught out. Whereas anytime you go out out the front door in Antarctica, you've got layers and layers of gear, and half the time you end up too hot, you end up sweating like yeah. when you overdress at a ski resort or something. So um, you're generally well prepared for it, but a, a cold August day down in Antarctic Station right now, to be minus 20, minus 30 degrees, at least sort of 20 or 30 knots of, of howling wind, if not worse. Um, There'd be the sun, sun's return this time of the year, so you'd have a bit of sunlight, but still a very, very short August day yeah. as you um,
0: hope that each day gets a bit longer in the, the run-up to summer. So, when you think of the Viktor Frankl quote, he was quoting his grandmother in Man's Searcher meeting, there is no such thing as bad weather, just inappropriate choice of clothing. Is that true?
2: Absolutely correct. Yeah, um, Rand Fine says the same thing, and it's uh, it's such a great quote because literally, if you've got the right gear and equipment, you're fine. The minute you lose a glove or you you, you don't have the right jacket or your vehicle breaks down and it's no longer able to generate heat, you
0: realise you're like,
2: oh, man, this is, this is going to get old
0: pretty quick. It's an interesting reframe, isn't it? Because the first time I actually heard that it was in relation to surfing. It was an Australian surfer by the name <sighs> of Dave Rastovich, and we were doing a surf check. It was my crazy life at one point. I'm doing a surf check with Dave Rastovich, at point lookout in Stradbroke Island. And I was like, oh, it's a bit shit today, Rasto. And he goes, mate, there's no such thing as bad surf, just poor choice of equipment. Pass me my surf man, you know? <laughs> and then you just go out and have the most amazing fucking, like this raster, like have the most amazing day in shitty, junky, one foot, onshore blur. And you look at him at yeah. the, the time of his life. But, you know, wh- going into like 537 days, uh, you were stuck uh, at Antarctica, so 100 and 200, like a lot more. You were there supposed to be for 365, so a lot more than you were supposed to be there. Yep. Um, how many times a day are you reframing? it must be incredible
2: so the, yeah the, i mean we we're supposed to go down there for a year and then the pandemic broke out they couldn't get us to a ship's planes and the whole thing just just fell in a heap in terms of the logistics to get get us home so we were extended and we didn't find out until we were only about 130 or days from the end so we kind of got told it's like you were running a marathon and you're 30 you're k's in and they're like oh by the way it's actually a you know, double marathon and you're like what so that was from, and then when we got to the one-year mark, that, that point where we should have been home and we're staring down the barrel of a second Christmas, second New Year's for me, it was a second birthday for a lot of us, that's when every day, when it got tougher, and, and you know, if there's only 24 of us there in that wintering team, you're fairly sick of each other by now, even the best of mates, and as, as professional as everyone was, and a really great team, it gets pretty old. And so you're constantly having to go, like, okay, cool, how do I... Focus on something else. How do I find the, the the learning opportunity in in this disaster that's happening in front of me? Or disaster. Sort of a. There were there were some other some pretty big disasters towards the end. But um, <laughs> you know, daily challenges, and you go, okay, it's fine. It's not. It's just a situation. Yeah. I need to go into
0: my cave, or I need to find a way to to break this loop and,
2: yeah. and kind of reset.
0: You uh, have a career that involved the Australian Army. For now, you worked in. Uh, the, diplomat, the diplomatic arm of the Australian Army. So I am, I am sure that, you know, the idea of being able to read a room and uh, choice of communication methods and, you know, making sure your message gets across effectively are all in your arsenal. But, you know, I'm a bit of a nerd for uh, Antarctic exploration. I'm also a bit of a nerd for space travel. And what Blow blows my mind about that stuff is, yes, you've got to be able to sometimes calculate an orbit trajectory in your head and also, might you might have to figure out how to you know, use the small amount of diesel you've got to stay alive for longer than you've got. But what's the mental health selection uh, when it comes to choosing a team for something like this?
2: Yeah, it's really important. And I mean, the main one is that having been in and out of war zones and you know, my diplomatic career after I was in the army as well, it, they do a lot around making sure you're sending the right people in the right frame of mind to go to a war zone or work at an embassy in a conflict zone or anywhere around the world. And the Antarctic program have a similar process. In fact, the head of psych is a former army psych as well. So in terms of running through selection centers and, and assessments and psych analysis and, and kind of, and then at the tail end of that, once you get the team together, making sure the team have the right dynamic and they work together as a team is sending down a, a, a team that's going to work. Um, And the main difference, though, is with an Antarctic team and certainly for a wintering team, there's no way to get anyone out. If anything goes wrong and anything happens, you have a, a generally it's about six months, six to seven months over the winter time where there's no way to get in there due to sea ice and the darkness and the weather. You can't get any flights, you can't get any ships down there. So you have to make sure you send the right people to get through that. Where it became difficult is that we ended up down there without any contact with anyone for 12 months. And it was after that point that it did get more challenging. There was only the one doctor on station to formally manage the mental health side of things. Um, As the station leader, and a great deputy station leader as well, we'd look at it from the management side of things. But it was certainly difficult. None of us had any real experience in, in mental health training and management beyond the stuff that we'd been given by the Antarctic Program. And that was a challenge. And then trying to work with people remotely, uh, which was available as well, so if you, if, if you felt you would need to reach out to, to organisations like Beyond Blue or, or others, you could do that. But I always found, and I found this when coming back from, from war zones and you're chatting to the Sykes or someone, try, you, you spend so much time just explaining what you were doing that it's really difficult in terms, especially for an Antarctic team, if you're trying to reach back to Australia or anywhere and, and explain it to someone else to get support they're often so confused as to the context of what you're doing down there and the world you live in. So for myself and for a number of the team, the best mental health strategy you have was to call someone who's either at another station with a similar problem or someone that had been in the chair before. And I found when I had some of the more ridiculous scenarios, like in the depths of winter, and it happened to Shackleton as well, which is hilarious, but one of the guys in the team kind of quit. He's like, I just can't do this anymore. It's quit. And you're like, well, you can't. Like, what, are you serious? And anyway, but it was it was calling other station leaders, and I'm like, what? The, this has happened before, and they just laugh. They're like, yeah, it happens every now and then. You work it out. You'll reset the relationship.
0: So by station leaders, you mean you're like, because when I'm when you're thinking station leaders, I'm thinking opening scene from John Carpenter's the thing. I'm seeing you know the Norwegian <laughs> station with the helicopter and the dog. <laughs> you know that's all I'm thinking. Yeah. When I read your story, I'm like, you're McCready. you're fucking Macready <laughs> in the shed, and you know. You're, so you're calling the Norwegians, going, Hey, hey Sven. Has this happened? Yeah, uh, yeah, David. Yeah. Oh,
2: absolutely. And I got the before COVID hit, I was able to visit the Indian, Russian, and Chinese stations that were nearby Davis, where I was. And uh, I remember at one moment, just when the Indian station leader and I had a moment to ourselves to just sort of swap stories of what it's like to run an Antarctic station. And we were just on the same page with all the little things. You're like, oh, do you get, I'm like, do you have this problem? He's like, oh, tell me about it. I'm like, ah, oh, exactly. Just such a unique leadership and management scenario to be in where you have to live and
0: work with them isn't it interesting that even though the mental health professionals who are probably on the other end of a you know zoom call or whatever trying or a phone or radio probably trying real hard to help someone far far away who's there that it, it reminds me again space nerd it reminds me of like that's maybe why nasa would have a former astronaut as the only person they're speaking to on the radio like they're the one that's who right,
2: was, yeah. The Capcom Yeah, yeah is it's always,
0: always someone who's flown yeah. a mission before. And so they know yeah. they know that when the radio when they radio down to Earth, they're speaking to someone who knows. I'm in a tin can that was put together by the lowest bidder <laughs> uh, in a tender process and I'm five hundred thousand yeah. kilometers away from anyone. <laughs> um, and this yeah. button's not working.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think, and the great thing was, like, when I did the the pre departure interviews with the team, there was a huge percentage of them that all wanted to be astronauts. And the general answer was was like, well, why aren't you an astronaut? It's so, like, well, I'm Australian, so it's pretty bloody hard to I been mean, two Australians fly in space. And also, you're like, well, I'm also not a bloody, you know. Yeah, you've really got to yeah. be
0: able to, when the shit goes down, you've got to be able to figure out, you know, trajectories and things in your brain. You know.
2: Yeah, but it was great. We had a little space club where we'd get up and for some reason still the launches were always at 4am in the morning. So you'd get up and you'd, you'd watch, um, watch the space launches on, the, on a kind of grainy YouTube live stream yeah. through the, the dodgy internet connection we d- had down there. But I think it was when we watched the Mars Perseverance rover, like launch from Australia halfway through our trip. And then we watched it land on Mars. You know, nine months later, and we were still in the same cinema, still stuck in Antarctica. We we're like, oh, well, we've been here, yeah, you know, that long."
0: Wow. I guess you're right. You know, is it reminds me of those those famous newspaper ads that you know, twelve words, wanted men of courage uh, uh, return, you know, for, for adventure, uh, return unlikely, which I think was the yes. newspaper ad for Shackleton's. Um, think It's a
2: great history history to that because we put that in the in the book. There's a there's a little bit about that, and the, it's a little bit controversial that they're not entirely sure that it actually ran in the kind of London oh, times oh, right. before the voyage. It might be a bit retrospective because no one's, as far as I know, I've never. You probably got a good amount of listeners. Maybe someone can dig it up, but I've never seen an actual kind of genuine nineteen. 14 front page that yeah. says kind of what are we doing about the german and then kind of oh hey by the way if you don't want to go to the first world war who wants to go to Antarctica?
0: i love that you just put on the newsreel voice
2: oh <laughs> absolutely right, you got to do it yeah. a lot of my friends give me give me a lot of grief for that that anytime i tell a story you've got to do the character voices you, oh look it's um, like
0: it's like yeah. karaoke if you're not if you're not reenacting the video and doing your best impression yeah of John Bondrovi living on a prayer. What are you even no. there for? This is not Australian Idol. This is karaoke and we're all here to sing along. So if you're not going, and two thousand times happen, like you've got to do it. But I, I, I get the idea that if you're Australian and you want to have that adventure, you know, people ask, you know, I, I love to scuba dive, love it. And people ask mm. why I say, because it's closest I'll ever get to being an astronaut. I'm in a completely foreign environment where my rules of physics don't really apply. If my equipment fails, I'll die. Um, you know, I have a limited time away from my my mothership. Uh, <laughs> and I'm looking at <laughs> creatures that are completely different from me. And similarly, Absolutely. to be in the isolation of an Antarctic station um, is that. It, it's that moment. It's that you, you talk about marathons. It's that what are we going to find out about ourselves from going down to to, to do this? Ah. I, I've heard about it. It's a word. It's two words. All right. You've heard. You hear it, cabin fever. You hear it happens uh, on. It came from the mountains, you know, when people are, well, you know, hiking through the mountains, they're in the cabin, they're in the snowed in for a couple of days and they get cabin fever. I've heard it happen on surf trips when people are in Indo and they're on a boat and they're stuck into a storm and they're there for three or four weeks and they can't get off the boat because of malaria and stuff on the islands and they just go bonkers. What do you learn before you go down about the early warning signs of cabin fever?
2: Yeah, so it's definitely a big focus of it and you certainly see the effects of it. And if you don't see the effects, you're probably blind to them. The best one is to reset and be able to get out. So one of the great things, yes, you're stuck on an Antarctic station, but we actually had about 400 square kilometres of operating area around us. So as long as the weather was good enough, you could get out and about. And that was often the best way to reset any cabin fever, like individually or as a group. You go, right, why is everyone so grumpy? Why is everyone shuffling around? You're like, well, it's been a blizzard all week. No one's been able to get out and... Do anything and kind of break the routine, and that was the best best way to, to deal with it. And they talk about that before you go down. But it's it's also with cabin fever. It's having that self awareness that you you're being impacted by it is probably a great start. That as you know, as, as cabin fever sets in, if you can pick up on it and go like, "Oh, geez, I'm I'm being grumpy today, or I'm being really short, or I, I can't, you know, I've, I've lost patience, or I'm being." You know, being a bit bit difficult to work with. If you've got that self awareness, you'll be able to be like, oh, hey, you can either apologise, fix mm-hmm. things, or, or go. Oh, I need a break. I need to go and do something. I need to you know, play some guitar or go to the gym, or get out, get off station, or, or hang out with different people. Yeah, was probably the best way to do it. And we we did everything we could, and that was a, there was a good balance between kind of organised fun and then just group. Fun to, to do things. Oh, we had a great midwinter film festival where we shot a short film as part and something all the or not all but a good amount of Antarctic stations do. We shot this five minute mockumentary uh, cooking show sort of thing and uh, called Totally Cooked. It was it was quite a hit. We actually won, which was great. I'd rather than have that. That dopamine hit of having victory for the team—you're like, hey, we, we won the film festival—and yeah. then there's an interstation darts contest where we set up a Zoom link to different stations. You're playing darts, and that's quite often controversial as well when you're looking at things on a on a video camera. Be like, oh, that's oh, that's it, that's out, and um, and then uh, dinners and, and events. We'd kind of almost yeah, celebrate as much as you could in terms of birthdays or or special events. You know, when the, you'd lose the sun. Uh, just before the darkness of winter kind of sets in. So you celebrate the last last viewing of the sun and then eight weeks later or so you kind of the return of the sun party and all these things.
0: It really sounds to me like, I mean, I'm, we haven't even touched on, you're down there to do really important scientific work. There is no, you know, more impacted part of our planet right now than our polar regions by climate oh. change and understanding more about them changing and the rapidity of how they're changing, uh, will help us, uh, in the rest of the world, you know, make better decisions, fingers crossed. Um, oh. so there's no doubt you're doing incredibly important work down there, but it, the way you're speaking, I mean, I talk a bit about it that you don't accidentally have good physical health. It sounds to me like oh. as station leader, a large part of what you're doing is like absolutely deliberately making sure that everyone's mental health is okay.
2: Absolutely. It was, it's probably, like, I mean, the, the science side of it, like, I'm not a scientist. My job was you know, as a station leader, kind of general manager of the station. Um, you've got some of Australia's leading scientists down there, mainly in the summertime and the wintering team is a few scientists. It's mainly just to keep the lights on in the station running, which is very, very difficult down there. It's just existing is a huge challenge. But, yeah, certainly as the station leader, your job is to kind of keep the group harmony as close to harmony as you can. And as it went on, that that became the bigger challenge. Like, I rarely had to get involved kind of tactically and operationally in decision making because the mechanics, they're just, they just don't know what they're doing they're, Generally overqualified for a lot of the jobs down there, and certainly the scientists. You're never going to go out and say, Oh, actually, shouldn't you be going to this glacier instead of that one? It's like they know what glacier they want to go to. My job's to make sure they've got the helicopters or the vehicles, or the boats or whatever to get out there, and that that's allocated, and that then they're debriefed properly. They're, they're, they're achieving their goals or the expectations are being managed In when we're not able to achieve them through weather or logistics or operational reasons. Yeah. That becomes the job. And in the first summer where we had, I think it was 118 expeditioners through the station wow. in the summertime when they've got the aviation links and the shipping and everything is still operational. The, I never really had many problems with mental health. You've got so many people and everyone's getting everything done. It was... That second summer that we were stuck there, that we weren't supposed to be, that's when it really pushed everyone to their limits in terms of you know you talk about resilience and, and testing it. It really pushed us all, and yeah. and that was you ninety know, percent of my job. Then became trying to do what I could, and for everyone around me as well to keep the group going and get it in the right direction and and you realised as well in terms of mental health and resilience there's no silver bullets there was nothing you could do other than go home that would solve most of the problems and you just had to go okay i'm not going to fix the problem i'm not going to fix this relationship i'm not going to fix this these two people or this group they're just not gonna it's not going to be perfect but how can we get it to the best place possible and that becomes an individual thing and a group thing that I find now when I do talks to to corporates and schools and stuff, they they might have had a a presentation from someone talking about mental health strategies, but then the questions come, well, how did you find when when none of it worked, when you've tried taking time for yourself, when you've tried the gym, you've tried music, you've tried reading, you've tried movies, you've tried talking to different people, you've tried calling home, you've tried absolutely everything in the, the pyramid of success to mental health. And none of it worked. What do you do? And you go, well, you try. You ask someone else what they're doing to do with their mental health. You try that. And we, we did. We, we had one of the. Uh, it, it's a good kind of turning point in in some ways after the the winter season, where we did this thing called Wellness Week, which was all it was the brainchild of myself and the doctor, um, and then everyone got involved to to run a seminar on what you're doing to manage your own mental health and how others can learn from it. And we did tai chi, we did yoga, we did cooking, we did. Kabucha brewing, we did all these different things that people were doing to help understand like, okay, at this point, my own strategies are no longer working or they're not having the same effect as they used to be. And now, oh, what's this guy doing or what's this girl doing? And we can learn from their success and try that. Just keep trying different things or something will something will work and eventually you get to
0: go home the way that you just described that that is exactly how in in my experience not only in in getting sober but also in getting i i went through a terribly dark period of mental health involved episodes of psychosis it was it was really bad um but uh my the guy that kind of has led me on my sobriety journey he would always talk about the concept of your own best thinking. He would always talk about, oh. okay, so the very best ideas you've got, the smartest you thought you could be, using all the skills you possibly have, have got you to this place that's extraordinarily bad. And you can't, th- oh. you can't th- you've got no more ideas left. Do you think it might be time to listen to some other people's ideas, people who might be doing a little better and you might want to be over there where they are? Yeah, I do. And that takes a huge amount of letting, letting go, this idea of I've got, because we want to feel that we've got it. We want to feel that we can cope. We want to feel that we're capable because yeah. we're idiots and we, you know, when it particularly men, we think that, no, I've fucking got this, mate. i will fucking fine. But no, yeah. if you're best thinking, in my experience, it got me, you know, divorced and unemployed and, you know, you know, financial you know shit and and I was like well I might someone else might have a better idea here and once I started listening to other people and following what other people were doing and seeing it's essentially David it was like looking at what another like picking someone who had what I wanted what have you Mm. you've got you're married again you've got kids you're back on your feet financially all right I want that what did you do and then kind of taking from them what worked for me and then putting new things Mm. in my toolbox and going, all right and I'm only here because I did that. And it's fascinating that you yeah. kind of systemized that inside your station. That's brilliant.
2: Yeah, and I mean, credit to the team as well. I just sort of steered the ship occasionally and, and they drove a lot of those things. But what I, I finished reading your book ahead <laughs> of this and one of the things that was fascinating that I found that I could almost, I could relate to, I think, as well in, at different times of my life, was that even at, at your, almost at your worst, you could still get out of bed and run, you know, five or 10Ks or run for an hour, have a job and like, to be a functioning kind of train wreck, it's a phenomenal um, juxtapositioning that you kind of think like, oh, when you're a, a train wreck or you, you've got all these problems, that everything will be bad. But it, it's fascinating that no, you can actually yeah. still be relatively fit, holding down a job, looking good, char- and, I'm, and you, you gloss over it. But I'm sure in a lot of these meetings and things, you were still charming and still yourself and still great. Yet inside, oh yeah, you just you, you're not functioning. You, you're not. You you feel like a failure. And that was something that spoke to me in your book. I'm like, oh, I'm glad he's he's kind of put that in there. You can still be Well, I think we
0: we have the picture of what complex mental illness looks like or we have the picture of what alcoholism looks like. But it's it's not it. You know, we might only see the pop culture version or the thing we've seen in books and films and TV where it's either someone sitting on a park bench screaming at things that you and I can't see or it's someone who's slurring their words and punching strangers and, you know, drinking out of a brown paper bag. Um, yeah. But no, like I essentially became a, a hyper real simulacrum of myself. I was a, uh, acting like a puppet of what I thought someone who was me would do in those meetings. Mm. Inside, I'm like, fuck, I hope no one understands what's actually going on and like, I'm pulling all the levers and you know, going, mm. that sounds like a great idea. Yeah, I'll be unreal. In the back of my mind going, that's a fucking stupid idea and everyone fucking hates yeah. it. Like, and the noise of trying to push that shit down so loud so loud. And I'm, I'm grateful you had a doctor on the station. I'm sure you had like a, I can't imagine the safety protocols you've got. If you've got a 400 square kilometer, you know, area, you know, the idea of like, well, some people are going out in a helicopter today. So that means we have to be ready to go and get them. If things go bad, like that every day, (laughs) skin your teeth, shit every day. What kind of mental health, what kind of mental health first aid though, did you guys, did you kind of discover and find yourself using?
2: Yeah. And look, everyone had their own strategies. Um, the first, first and foremost was remaining active in the community, I think was was vitally important. If someone wasn't turning up or turning up, you, know, you get no shows to work and stuff. And that, that's totally fine. How do you Part no show in an Antarctic t-
0: station? Like, is well, <laughs> is
2: like- yeah. So most people reported for work at 7.30 uh, every morning. and We'd work till sort of five, uh, five or six o'clock each night. And But sometimes you just need a no-show because you just, you you haven't slept well, Um, the darkness and then the the 24-hour sunlight in the summertime affect you and and sometimes you you get a no-show. It's it's about, okay, checking in. Is this a pattern or is this a one-off? And then what I found was really challenging as the leader is often I'd feel like my, my, not my brand, but that my relationship wasn't always great with everyone or on every topic. So sometimes you could talk to people, others you couldn't. It's that, okay, if I think someone's having problems or they're not functioning that right or someone says to me like go, oh, hey osha's not doing that well this week you go okay cool do you is this you kind of think do i get involved do i chat to the doctor about it do i use the deputy station leader who was also the chef and she was incredible in the way she looked out for the community and then would advise me or the doc or the right person to to pull the right lever or she, she'd be able to just turn up and then you know there's a cupcake on your desk or something and you're like oh, okay cool and, and you know there was those little things that were often good and the, the quieter behind the scenes support mm. for people's well-being and mental health was, was challenging but there was also the the unknown of you don't always know what's going on back home in someone's life yeah. because it's just the 24 of us there in that winter team and back home you'd, you'd have a sense of friends and family and they, you'd, you'd be able to go, oh, hey, this guy's not turning up for his social events and there'd be other elements of life where he's on the station, it's all one and the same work and social life. And, you know, sometimes people just need to withdraw and that's fine or they're, they're functioning well at work but not socially, but they're not that social. And, look, it was, it was challenging to, to keep a, a finger on the pulse. And, you know, between myself, the doctor, the deputy station leader and then the other leaders in the team, so you've got the sort sub-teams in there as well, it was our biggest challenge was trying to keep a handle on that and, and make sure that if someone did need a bit of help, they were getting it from somewhere. Or, but fundamentally with all mental health things, the self-awareness factor is the biggest challenge that we had. Um, you know, if someone's not willing to sort of admit that they're not having a yeah. good week, very hard to get in there and say, hey, like you've said, you know, you're chatting to a, a professional psych about it, who took, you know, was able to get through to you. You go, I don't have that training. There's a doc, he's a, he's a GP. So that was tough.
0: Yeah. So not ev- not everyone's going to spend 537 days isolated in an Antarctic station without a way to get home. Uh, no. But And I wouldn't recommend it. No, it doesn't sound like, a, like <laughs> you clearly came out of it with some valuable lessons. But, yes, uh, definitely. Yeah, uh, for the professional glad.
2: development is worth
0: it. Yep. Yeah, you're all safe and well, which I'm glad to hear. Um but so not everyone's going to spend 537 days isolated in an Antarctic station. But um, you mentioned that the, the the key thing there was self awareness. What's a bit of a checklist that we can run through to to go kind of figure out that self awareness? What, what's what's something like what's like a little technique that we might be able to use in our day to go, okay, here's where I am, and then what happens after that?
2: Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, like. A fitness test. If you know how many push-ups you can do, you know how fast you can run 5Ks, you know how fast you can do how many chin-ups or whatever you can do. Trying to have a bit of a mental health checklist as well of knowing like, oh, how social you want to be, what events you're happy to do or how you're going with building new relationships and meeting new people. I think sometimes your sort of social fitness in a way is something you can use to gauge, oh, wow, I'm really... I'm, I'm saying no to things, or I'm not doing. Oh, that always the, goes the first. Oh, yeah, yeah, and and that is your first trigger. Of all of a sudden, you're like, "Well, okay, that's it. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a bit backwards." Or that's probably the the quickest and easiest one. But how do you build self awareness? It's it's tough. Um, I think trusting and listening to other people. We, when we before we went down on the with some of the physical first aid training we did, which was really really high level stuff, It was really good. But it was all based around. Um, cold injuries and and ice related, probably ice axes, impaled on an ice axe after falling and all sorts of things but one of the great things there that the trainer taught and it's the same with mental health is that if someone on the scene just takes command of it and kind of like peels back their shirt Superman style and be like, I'm here I'm going to fix this problem you could almost start to apply that in the mental health side as an agreement before, and we didn't do this, We one of those lessons in hindsight that might have been good, that if someone flags you, say, hey, Osha, you're not, not running right this week or, you, you know, how are you going in the mental health? If someone flags that, don't dismiss them, that you have to then have a conversation. And that's something I'd encourage um, everyone to do. If someone mentions it to you, they've noticed something that you haven't. Don't dismiss it and don't, again, take your it, ego. She's the male ego and the human ego. For you know, Females can be just as egotistical as men at times. The human ego and its ability to get in the way of progression and learning and fixing problems. And you, know, you see that in all walks of life. That it's, once you can park that, yeah, the world's your oyster.
0: In terms of growth, yeah, or... mate. That's the that is that's is my biggest enemy. Without a shadow, it jumps in before I've even had a chance to think. It gets in there and makes my mouth say stuff, and then I see my wife's face. I'm like, oh fuck, and then, and then I've got. That's <laughs> been the next hour, kind of you know sisyphean like rolling the rock back up the mountain i'm you know just trying to make amends for the shit that just flew out of my mouth to try and protect my fragile little you know scared little teenage boy that lives inside me what um so if we're in the if we're in the moment like say you, you know i don't know you someone gets on the radio and goes oh mate we've just lost the lights in you know building c and you know oh fuck that's where you know such and such and person works and that means a week okay great what's some things that you can do in the moment to center yourself before you take action what's some things that you found to go right okay if you were a bit bobbly what kind of things yeah. were you using to go okay now i know the next thing that comes out of my mouth is going to be okay
2: Oh, for sure. Uh, so we had uh, we had quite a number of little uh, incidents along the way, from the, the ship catching fire on the way home to we had to do a crazy medical evacuation just on Christmas Eve. And uh, but but in the lead up, then we had a couple of power outages, which is probably the best example for, for what you've just talked about. There is very we had two diesel generators or two diesel powerhouses, one with four, one with two generators inside. So there's a lot of redundancy even within those systems. But in the depths of winter, if the power went out, at the main powerhouse and the the whole station went went dark, which would happen. It always seemed to happen at two AM in the morning. So you just wake up straight away. You've got that moment of recognition. You're like, right, power's out. Emergency lighting's on. Cool. We've got half an hour to get this done. You see the mechanics and the electricians. You know, with one mismatching two left boots kind of things, just bolting out the door to get to the powerhouse to get it going again. Because about half an hour until the pipes freeze, and it's it's pretty messy at that point. But you you know your job, and in we'd switch between you know primary roles and then your secondary emergency roles and everyone has a job and if you don't have a job your job is to, s- to go to the mess sit there and wait until someone gives you a job or find yourself a job that's important to the plan and every time we did we about once a month or so we'd do fire training or, or emergency response training of some description for a lost expeditioner, for vehicle damage or vehicle breakdowns out in the field or like the helicopter down sort of scenario you talked about you're rehearsing that every time you know your job, and everyone knows their job. And if they don't, they know their job is to sit there and wait until someone tells them what to do. And then when it came to running the medical evacuation, um, which happened on Christmas Eve, and we had to use Chinese, uh, Christmas Eve too actually, 2020. So we had to use a Chinese helicopter for an icebreak 100 kilometres away and reposition an American plane for sort of 5,000 kilometres away to meet an Australian plane uh, coming into Casey. And across, you know, distances like the whole of the southern, or the Australian slice of the southern hemisphere. In COVID, so it was all in full PPE and distancing and different languages and all sorts of stuff. Um, everyone had a job to do, and it down to just a hey, your job is down there with that fire with the aviation fire extinguisher, and that's it. You know how to use that. Know how to use that fire extinguisher really well. Or cool, your job is to just be in the u, be on standby if anyone needs to move around. This. The station's you know a couple of square kilometres. It's quite a big layout. And you're like right. If anyone needs to move quickly. Your job is you're going to, to just move that, move them around to save them time because minutes matter in, in an emergency, or seconds matter. So you've, you you just you you have a job, no matter how simple it is, and you do it well, and that's probably the, the key in a crisis.
0: I had uh, a couple of weeks ago. I had an extraordinary human being, uh, Lucy Easthope. She's a disaster planner. And uh, uh, amazing, amazing books called When the Dust Settles. And uh, she talked about, and she's seen, she's been at the back end of, you know, some horrible, horrible, horrible things. Mass casualty events, horrible natural disasters, war, like morgues built for thousands of of war victims, like really awful. And she talks about, generally people who even people who've been really horribly affected by their literally entire world being turned upside down like a tsunami has come and destroyed every single piece of continuous culture for the last few hundred years gone nothing of their Mm. environment looks like it ever did and never will again she said as long as those people have a horizon to swim to they're usually okay like we're not going to have power outages or a helicopter down in our family lives but what can we do in our in our homes what can we do around you know crisis points or getting ready for crisis points and understanding what it is to to have a plan and have a job to do in those moments
2: yeah have everything like plan for the worst and hope for the best as they say but planning for all the different contingencies and that's something that now i'm not going to condone hoarding of toilet paper like i avoided that whole situation when i got back it didn't make any sense but you can see why people do it and it's a case of well if you're hoarding toilet paper at the start of the pandemic it means you've already you don't have enough toilet paper. and then what I did as soon as I got back, because we got back to my story about April 2021, and I kind of, at a time when it wasn't too bad, the lockdowns were over and it looked like things were on the on the up. It turns out that was pretty much the eye of the storm. All I did was, was around my house and in life, I just went and got things set up because I'm like, I bet you there's going to be more lockdowns coming. So yeah. rather than so finish building my backyard, I just go and buy all the materials, get all the materials pile it up, put it in the one corner and go, cool, that's the backyard project. And I was redoing my staircase as well. So yeah. went and got all the timber, all the supplies, piled that all under the old staircase and said, right, that's the staircase. And then So eventually then when we got to sort of uh, about July, August or whatever it was, 2021, and the lockdowns came back, yeah. everyone's was like, oh, how are you going to go? I'm like, I am set. I've got the backyard to do the I'd, and I'd set up a home gym. I'd set all that stuff up so that all you do is – you go, well, I've, I, I do the backyard and then I do the staircase. And it's the same with different plans in your life in terms of, and I love other great quote from your book as well, where you said, you know, losing your jobs and you're like, I've just lost my job, so what what I do. And, and one of your, your mentor, your mate, was just sort of like, no, mate, this is the opportunity. This is this is what you want. And it's having those on the shelf ready to go so that all of a sudden, okay, I've lost my job or I've lost my partner or, or something. You go, well, what's my plan? Or you don't have to. You know, necessarily have it all, all the minutia worked out, but mentally, you've thought about all these different contingencies and, and concepts, so that when one of them happens, yeah. you're not making a decision on the fly. You go, oh, that's right. Oh, well, if this happens, we do that. Or now it's time to work on my side hustle, or get another job. Or I've always wanted a career change, and it's that's the best way to prepare yeah. and make sure that all right. Well, whatever happens, it's not a surprise because I've thought of absolutely every scenario
0: yeah we're not going doomsday we're not going doomsday prepper we're not building a bunker it's just I guess what you're talking about is just spend a few like I I literally I literally do this every day and I've found it to be extraordinarily helpfully helpful and it's not morbid I meditate on Mm. my own death every day I think about I think about my own death every day and I remind myself that I will die and my kids my kids might die before I die And I know my Mm. dogs will die before I die. It's hard, but I do, I take Mm. the time to think about that every day. And it helps me go well and and kind of make kind of better decisions and think about what ifs. And so when it does happen, not if, when, it does happen, whatever it is, um, Mm. my brain remembers, oh, this is what we were going to do. Rather than suddenly being, fuck, I'm fucked. I am just being – because if being with no next place to step is terrifying. Mm. As long as you've kind of thought about it, you don't have to go and buy everything or stockpile everything. Just as long as you've thought about it, as long as your brain knows where you're going to go. You know, yep. it, it sucks and it should be on a tea towel, but the antidote to panic is a plan and that's it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and the minute you've got a plan, even if it's not the perfect plan, you've got something to do. Yeah. And you go, oh, that's, that's what we do. And, oh, hey – you and I exactly the same thing in lockdowns last year. Wrote a freaking book. You just go All right. <laughs> I, it, it's classic. But I look back now and go, well, oh, lockdown 2021. I built a beer garden in my backyard, which is the most audacious backyard in South Melbourne now. And then wrote and wrote a book. It's like, well, what have you got to show for it? And You're like, well got a book and yeah. that was i think the, the perfect timing in terms of yeah. you know i had a great story to tell and and i would had the options for a few publishers and stuff chasing me so i'm like oh yeah let's do it and and creating opportunity my old employer was like oh you know we really need you to, to kind of move to canberra and i'm like no nah, i quit Got to run i'm a book. done
0: with cold
2: i'm yeah. okay <laughs> Yeah, I don't like roundabouts. So. And so I quit. And that was just like, okay, what do I do now? And it's, it was at the time I was getting options for, well, they were online gigs talking to, to schools and, and corporates. So, okay, I'll get into this. And, and that's when I really started to put pen to paper. And go, okay, let's, let's do the book. And it, it had been in the works yeah. for a while in the back of my mind. I'm like, okay, we're well, we going to do this or not. And it's a tough one as a true story and a story that's only, you know, I can only tell it through my eyes. And a number of the team were supportive of the project and and helped out with fact checking things and and photos and really thankful to them. But I knew there'd be a small number of the team that are like, you know, wank up, written a book. And that's any true story. And it's at the end of the day, like it was a story worth telling, whether or not everyone agrees with the exact version of events, which I think is actually about as accurate as you can put in a book. Um, without going too far into details of certain other elements of it, and you go all right, That's
0: that's yeah. There. It's not it's 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 not a deposition. No. That was, I remember what I wrote. Yeah. If you need to amalgamate uh, a half of one and the back half of, um, of another, you know thing to get a point across, but okay. It I mean, it's all right.
2: Okay. You, know, you would have found this as well. It's so cathartic and such a good process to understand your own life and your own background, and, and then you look yeah. at like I found myself looking at decisions and go, well, why did I make that? And not just why did I make that decision or why did we do that in terms of what was available at the time? But like, but as a, as a, why as a human, like what's my family background and, and you start to weave all these things into yeah. understanding your own personality and why you are the way you are and why you do things and why others do it when you're sitting there writing it and framing, okay, yeah. this happened, but how do I, how do I tell that story, and you start to go, okay, well, I need to convey the emotion that I was feeling in that moment, but the story doesn't make sense. Like this, that, that particular story, you know, out of context, you know, how do you set the context around what I felt that day? And, and that yeah. stuff was, for me, it, it talking about mental, mental health, writing the book helped a lot to unpack and deal with some of the, the things um, I'd been through uh, while we were down
0: there, yeah. Writing is a, writing is a hand, writing out of your hand. I find long handwriting is extraordinarily yeah. useful. Uh, I call it taking out the trash. I take I take out the rubbish. And um, a, a psychiatrist once told me, I said, no, nah, you can't type it in your phone. You can't type it into a laptop. You've got to write it out. You've got to write those shitty thoughts out with your hand. There's something about the movement of the hand, the energy dissipating from your oh, arm stop. muscles moving that gives yourself a, a sense of, ah, this is now, I've closed oh. some sort of loop. And I firmly believe everyone should write at least some part of their life story down, because it gives you an idea of to see exactly how far you've come. You mentioned, you know, expeditioners being down at your Antarctic station. We're all on an expedition. We're on an expedition of life, dealing with challenges every day. In fact, we're all fucking champions because we have completed and conquered every single challenge that ever faced us right up until the moment you heard my voice say this. All right. And we are awesome because we've done it. But looking back, it's a moment to kind of when you step back and have a look, yes, you did it one day at a time. You look and go, what? And I'd like, for example, last night, when it's <sighs> wild, you know, when TV's on, when I'm on a TV show, people from whom I haven't seen for years drop me a DM or, or text on, on, on Twitter or whatever. And someone DM me last night going, mate, I haven't seen you. Last time I saw you was 15 oh. years ago at a nightclub in ah. Melbourne called Boutique, and you had a security guard with you and you were ah. really serious. Now, 15 years ago, was oh. it 2007? I don't even remember the nightclub boutique. Uh, I don't remember that night, but it sounds about right. That was about the time before I was taking medication and I probably would have had a security guard with me and I would have been serious Mm. because I would have been terrified and off my face. And I look back and I think, I don't even Mm. recognize that man. And that was me. And so it's so important to write stuff down so you can look back and go, fuck, I have changed. And then also to understand Mm. that this might suck right now, but as much as I've changed since back then, I will probably change going forward. So it's not always going to be this way. Yeah, And that's,
2: it's crazy how quick things change. Like, I look at, look, and I was thinking about this the other day when I was, I was asked about it at a school. They're like, oh, did you want to be, you know, an Antarctic station leader kind of guy when you grew up? And I went, no, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. Um, but okay, if I went back to, to 17-year-old me now and said, hey, look, you're not going to get to fly jets,
0: you're too tall and you're, just don't go down that path. You're going to be a hit um, on Tinder, mate, but you can't get in those, yeah, you can't correct. get in a and tomcat. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> yeah, but it, but you go, hey, would
2: you go back to 17-year-old you and say, hey, mate, by the way, this is what's ahead of you. That, that kid would be like, hell yeah, that sounds good. But but then they, they, they sort of stop and go, well, also, there's going to be some rough patches. There's going to be some yeah. other things that don't go well. Like it's not all sunshine and rainbows, but it'll be worth it in the end. And <laughs> I think you're stronger for your, your, your low points. And like when you hit hitting rock bottom, is, is almost an empowering moment where you go, okay, I've, I've hit rock bottom. And then even being mentally prepared for that, there'll be another rock bottom and then there'll be rock bottom after that. And then at one point you go, okay, that's actually rock bottom. And now the only way is up. And I'm glad I had that experience like you've had as well. You go, right, right, I've been to the limits and, I, and I'm still here. I didn't make you know some b- really bad decisions. I'm still here and great and now i've got so much more experience because i've been to rock bottom and then like you do as well you can teach others about it and that's what i see the best part about my story and 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 putting the book out and stuff was was about okay if other people can learn from this experience where i got it right where i got it wrong just how tough it was and that can then help future leaders learn from it and and do a better job or even just be aware of how tough it can be um, when you get in a situation like that then that's that's something and, and for what you've done for mental health and, and everything with, with your book and your podcast and stuff getting it out there and go well hey yeah I can stand on a what do you call it? like the shiny floor TV shows oh, where everything looks great. Oh, that's amazing. But at the other side of that there's there's another another side of that coin and, yeah. and there's a way out of it. And it's yeah. not all well I like to say it's not all sunshine <laughs> and penguins but
0: uh, yeah. oh sunshine <laughs> and penguins sounds amazing. Which oh. it is some days but yeah. yeah. Oh mate, because but the thing about the thing about rock bottom, David, is that if you're at rock bottom and going, I'm down here because of that guy, or I'm down here because of that cop, or I'm down here because of yeah. that beer, it's not rock bottom. It's only rock bottom yeah. when you're like. Oh, I'm down it's here because I said that thing to that guy or yeah. I'm down here because I drank that beer. That's when it's rock bottom. When you take responsibility for you being there, that's the only time that you can get up and walk in a different direction because otherwise you're just going to keep walking the same path. And it's hard. And the, the blame game is such an interesting because it's the easiest thing in the world. The, the minute
2: something happens, you're like, well, this isn't my fault. It's because... Of whatever, And Rocky in you know, like Rocky 6 or whatever does the great special. Like, I'm not here because of him or her or anybody. It's, like, it's, it's a bad Rocky voice. But anyway, um, it was the
0: same thing. I was thing there. With there. That, well, I'm with we're, you. Are you a, you uh, a 75-year-olds, Delon, chock full of everything <laughs> to make him look like a 20-year-old. <laughs> yeah. But but that's the thing. If you go with, with
2: our predicament, and I used to say this at all the station meetings or when something, when but just people were kind of throwing blame around or just not wanting to really take it forward, you're like, we're all in the same boat. And it was this case of, this isn't my fault or your fault or anyone's fault. This is the fault of the global pandemic and a whole range of other factors. But none of that matters why we're stuck here. We're here and let's make the most of it because we're all in that same boat. It may not be your fault, but it's your problem. And what are you doing to fix it? And I say this with people that have worked for bad, you know, bad leaders or managers or even bad teammates. You go... Oh, they're like, oh, he's, he's useless. You know, can't catch, you, can't, you know, can't bowl, can't catch. And whatever it is, yeah. You know, but what have you done to make him better or her better? What are you doing? And same with, oh, my boss is an idiot. You're like, okay, what have you done to help them be a better boss? So like, nothing, he's he's useless. So I undermine him, I bitch behind his back, I, I don't turn up, and I like, take that because I'm cooler than you. You're like, what kind of fellowship is that? Or what kind of an employee are you? All you're doing is trying to like, undermine your boss rather than actually try and help them because you know even as as obama said to trump like your success is our success but like, why try and undermine someone you um, can actually try and help them and it's something that you know i find yeah the, the blame game and then the minute someone you're like oh what what went wrong there like oh because this and if they're still in the blame game you, you go hey you, you know, well, what have you done to yeah. be better or what have you done to help that other person be better yeah.
0: Thing about being in blame is, if you're in blame, then you're you're powerless. If you're blame, you, if you're in blame, you are giving the agency of your next move over to something outside of you, yep. and you will then just kind of whip around like the, you know, a kid on the back of a speedboat, the dad's real excited about the new tow rope and like you're just going over someone else's wake and then next thing you know, you're upside down in the Southport spit hoping that a wakeboard doesn't come and get you, you know, you, you know what I mean? Like you have to, you have to take responsibility because if you're in blame, you've got, then you've got no choice. Then you are stuck and every move that gets made outside of you will feel like you're getting pushed around and you'll just feel smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. If you take responsibility for where you are and you're in acceptance, then you're in power. Then you can go, well, what am I going to do about this? And then, as you mentioned, you've got a plan. And when you've got a plan, you feel like you're in, in control. Can I talk a little bit about uh, the just the basic foundations of, you know, I'm, I'm interested in how this works. I mean, at, at my house, you mentioned, you know, your pandemic adventure uh, with your, your beer garden. Mine was the, the, the ever-growing backyard gym. I've kind of got all these stuff, these things in kind of in my home to know that my basics are taken care of. If I need to train, I can train like that. My food in my fridge is is there. Uh, my you know my bed is pretty great. I've got a pretty good protocol around getting to sleep. Um, it's not always perfect, but I I know that if things start to fall apart, I just need to look at those things. Am I moving my body enough? Am I sleeping enough? Am I eating the right things? Am I being purposeful and connecting in, am I being cranky or am I being authentic? Am I actually connecting? So when you're in that situation, when you're getting to like day 450, day 480, all right, how are you taking care of those fundamentals? Yeah, so the body you know, is, is the fundamental part of that, and I had
2: some pretty straightforward routines. It's just every morning, get up and do some push-ups and some stretches. Like get out of bed for something you want to do, and it, at the end of the day, and we did the push-up challenge and all that stuff as well along the way, which was great to see. Just walk into rooms and people just doing push-ups. Um, and we ran fitness classes, so we'd run workshops and, and sort of group fitness classes from time to time. And then they kind of had a bit of an upswing towards the end as well, as we realised that the end was coming. And I'm like, oh maybe let's go home a bit fitter than we were or you just, you you go, I'll put on a few kilos in the wintertime but hey, who doesn't and let's fix that later and get out and hike and and move around to get your body right. I found I struggled to get the right routine. One of the problems with the gym down there, there was only really one gym, We, we did, we had another sort of stretching room thing but didn't really, didn't really work and then you could go to the gym and go, cool, it's it's you know, it's chest day, I'm going to get the bench press and I'm going to do this, I'm going to work chest and we'll do some arms and then I'll have, you know, get in the sauna, a little sauna down there and you're like, oh, I'll get in the sauna at the end. And you get down there and there's someone else on the bench press and you're like, okay, that's all right, I'll just, I'll do, you know, do something else. And then, oh, cool, there's someone else in the sauna and it's someone that you don't want to be in the sauna with and you're like, Pfft. and so Got you it. always had to have two, again, different plans of, all right, if I'm going to go down there, even if it's chest day, You go okay. Maybe I just jump on the roller or the treadmill and we do some cardio because that's still good. I still at the end of the day, I still need to do a workout and move my body. And then let's go and do something else. And and that look, there was some friction points. I think at one point when the gym was getting too crowded and people would be like, "What are you doing in the gym at this time?" Like that's my time. And there was this push, like, "Oh, maybe we should have set rosters and times." You go look. There's so many, everything's so controlled. You can't go outfield without this. You can't do this. You can't do that. There's all these rules and regulation. I'm like, I really was loathe to regulate gym timing. And there was some de facto times when you knew there'd be different people in there because of their routines with their work shifts. So you go, okay, mm-hmm. just try and not go then because you'll never get the machines they use every day. If you've got flexible working arrangements, you can then go at two o'clock in the afternoon because it doesn't matter and then you can work later but the optics of that are often funny and that was something that with the group vibe of like hey osha's in the buddy sauna at two o'clock on a tuesday yeah but he can do that because he can work he's up to midnight working on his laptop because he can work on his laptop rather than hey, he's a plumber, it's, it's tricky for a plumber to work at midnight. If there's, well, they certainly worked at midnight when the pumps yeah. failed and stuff, but um, not by oh, plan. Yeah. So getting your body right was was tough. Um, yeah. and, and I certainly, when I got home, I, was, the, I was probably the heaviest I'd been in a long time in a bad way, like not good heavy, bad heavy, and took a long time. And only now, you know, this sort of in the last month or two, have I started to feel... Fit and active again, and I can run as far and as fast as I used to, and can start to kind of lift heavier weights and push it rather than worried about injury and, and setbacks. And every time I'd start to feel good, you would get injured, and and the doc worked pretty hard with a lot of injuries down there to keep our bodies in the right right shape as well. It's always
0: always the way. But, yeah. What did what did you learn about? Um, you know, about down-regulating when you're in that pressure environment, what kind of techniques would you would you use to, in a stressful situation, which I'm sure they became multiple yeah. times a day, what would you learn about how to quickly down-regulate in a moment so you didn't say or do the wrong thing? Look, I'm,
2: I did stuff up a few times. I said the wrong things or I, I kind of just owning it and go, hey, yeah, that was, yep, yeah, sorry about that one. That was that was the wrong thing to say. Or then, pro- yeah, probably afterwards sitting down with the person going, yep, yeah, hey, Probably shouldn't have said that uh, in front of the group. Uh, the moment got to me. And and that was something I'd never really had trouble with before. I'd always been like, okay. And and that was, again, another sort of moment of self-awareness. You're like, geez, I've never stuffed up like this before. I've never kind of like, yeah. oh, you've... you've not belittled someone or just said something that you're like, oh, geez, that was conceived con- contrived or in the wrong way or received badly. And you're like, i oh, yeah. stuff like that. But I'm good in a group. I'm good with the crowd. How am I making these mistakes? And you're trying to reset things with someone afterwards and apologising and go, I'm struggling with this as much as, as you are or anyone is. Um, sometimes you recover, sometimes you don't. And, and that's a tough one to, to keep on top of. So I don't know if I ever found the right the perfect balance and perfect solutions for that stuff. But again, being aware very quickly, of like, oh, that didn't go well and yeah. reading the room.
0: It's hard to, to you know, quickly try to make amends. What what have you learned about, you know, trying to make it better?
2: Uh, do, do, as soon as you realize you've made a mistake, try and just, just get onto it and be sincere, be open. Don't try and, you know, sugarcoat it and just be like, cool, yeah, no, I stuffed up. Totally apologize for that. Um, yeah yeah you know, i'll be better i'll try and be better next time or will be better next time and and again if people are being professional and grown-ups you can get through anything and that's that's the really yeah. important thing as well yeah. that you're not you're not holding a grudge and, and you know others not holding grudge as well and yeah it got it was tough for all of us and i think that was something as well that yeah. you know when we all admitted it to each other and one-on-one you'd be like yeah Look, this is this is ridiculous. We're never supposed to be here this long. And, and it wasn't really anyone's fault. Like, the, the circumstances around us getting extended, it was a safe thing to do physically. We had fuel and food for two years, so we were safe. But logistically, it was just easier or was the safest option to leave us there. It's just that human factor of, oh, hang on a minute, like, of course... People are making bad decisions. Of course, people are grumpy. Of course, things are like, this is ridiculous. You're not supposed to be here this long. It's longer than you expected. And there's no, like you were saying before, if there's no the horizon to swim to. For us, that horizon kept moving a little bit with the the ship that they charted to get us. There was some uncertainty around exactly when and how it would get us. And, and then even at the end, that horizon, now if you know that horizon is cool, that horizon is you know, the Gold Coast and I'm going to get there and then that's where I'm going to be and that's what the Gold Coast is like. For us, we didn't really know what we were going to come home to and that was the biggest challenge for all of us of not knowing what the pandemic actually was looking like back home. Was it when we got home, was there going to be lockdowns? Were we going to be free? Could we travel? Could we hug? Could we? Who knows? And without that certainty to latch on to, that's when you then your mind just starts to wander and you have to bring it back to what we've kind of talking about before with sphere of control and go and go, okay, what can I control? And all I can control is how I face this uncertainty. And you come back to some of that stuff. And again with, you know, when we when I got it wrong with some of the group things, you go, okay, well, all we can do is is what's next. And just focus on that rather than dwelling on past mistakes or the situation we're all in.
0: I love – you've used you used two of my favourite words, of course, the best. <laughs> yep. One of the more powerful reframes that I, I tend to use. Like, well, of course that person said that to me because instantly it snapped you into their point of view. You're like, oh, right.
2: The best, of course, story I've got. So when, um, when the ship finally came and picked us up and then we had to go past Lawson Station and do the crew change out there and we finally started sailing north from Lawson Station on about day 500 and – 30 odd, right? And there's 100 people on the ship, so you get got my team of 20, we're down to 22 by that point. We'd lost the two with the medical evacuation. So, down to 22 of us, uh, a dozen or so out of Mawson Station, and the ship's crew, and then some round trip expeditioners. And at 11 o'clock on, I think it was the 5th of April, um, the ship's fire alarm goes off. I wake up, uh, I was having a nap, pitch black, there's smoke in the cabins and the hallways, and then the decks, you mustering down get to the forecastle. we're standing next to the lifeboats, you know, the ship's on fire, crew are running everywhere to try and fight the fire, we're trying to account In for everyone. In the middle run. of the Great Southern you know, Ocean. It, it, nearest land was Heard Island, three days sail away. You're going, Good we are God. nowhere near anything. And I, I remember just standing there going like, well, of course the ship's on fire. Like, of course this happens. <laughs> like, we've had... We've been extended, we've missed the pandemic, we've had this medical evacuation, we've had all these other challenges all these things. And they're like, of course it ends in a fire and of course we're going to get in the lifeboats and sail to Hurt Island and you know, <laughs> recreate the the, the voyage of the James Caird to, you know, South Georgia. Like, that's, of course that's what happens. And, you know, six hours later, they eventually got the ship going and we limped into Fremantle on, on one engine at kind of half speed. But I was, I was so kind of proud and... and um, it was a fascinating thing. The, 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 it was, seemed to be my team and the, the, we'd been through so much. We had this like, well, of course the ship's on fire moment. And we were actually, most of us were like, oh, yeah, cool, what do we do? Let's yeah, just get ready to abandon ship or do our own thing and, and yeah, we'll be home, they'll be fine. Whereas,
0: Did you notice perhaps, a different vibe between your 20 and the other 80? Totally, totally. There was th-
2: very distinct groups in terms of their response to the scenario. And you'd think that after everything we'd been through and the guys that had come out of Morrison as well, who'd been there for a year, um, you'd think that they'd be like, oh my God, like, I just want to go home and now the ship's on fire. They were actually the calmest and and most relaxed. It tended to be the ship's crew and some of the round trippers who'd come out of Australia and were, you know, 40 days into a, a ship's voyage to the Southern Ocean to just pick up these, these teams. They probably had the harder time coming to terms with what had happened and, some of the the potential ramifications. So it was, yeah, very fascinating to see those. And look, I stereotype, there was obviously outliers in all those categories, but as a general sense that it was our teams that did it right.
0: A moment away from David Knopf to remind you, A, Bachelors is on tonight. So make a note in your phone. And while you're in your phone, look at the show notes of this episode. And um, there's a link there to buy tickets to come and see our new show which is on from January 27th at the Factory Theatre in Marrickville, 7pm, NNN Nighttime News Network National Nightly News with Osher Ginsberg and the NNN News Team. It's a very silly, live, satirical news show. It's a lot of fun. We talk about the actual news of the day. We do discuss what actually goes on, but in a very, very different way. So it's news, but not as you know it. And it's great. And I can't wait for you to see it. We've got a couple of shows already booked in Marrickville uh, at the Factory Theatre there. And if these go well, we're going to hopefully extend that out and then hopefully get down to Melbourne International Comedy Festival. So do do come and see us. 20 bucks tickets. We made it as cheap as we possibly could and still afford to be able to put it on. Hey, everybody. Because uh, there's a bunch of people involved on stage. 7 p.m. Uh, starts and we're out at 8 that's it. Got a heart out because that's when the band start. We've got to finish before the noise starts. So thanks um, if you already bought tickets. Uh, if not, get among it because it's not the biggest room and, um, you know, tickets are, are limited. They really are. Thank you. The link's just in the show notes of this episode. We're back with David Knopf in just a moment.
2: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
1: That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.
0: Yeah, we we spoke a lot about how you kept everyone together mentally and stuff like that, but is it a beautiful place?
2: Oh, Antarctica, it's, it's phenomenal. That's why everyone keeps going back. There's there's no there's no way to describe it. You know, words and videos and photos do not do it justice. Like the sheer scale of icebergs and ice cliffs and, and even just seeing all the wildlife and its natural habitat. You, know, you talk about the impacts of climate change on Antarctica. Humans have only been going there for the last you know 100 or 200 years in terms of like when whalers and stuff started to discover it. It's so untouched. Even the stations are very sparsely kind of dotted around the peninsulas and a few inland. There's just this white nothingness this continent bigger than Australia. And seeing that and, and seeing in its full scale, you just you cannot help but feel like you're a dot in time compared to this place. And there was elements and locations where you'd fly out there completely remote and you see the glacial like, rivers of melting. They, they melt every summer and refreeze every winter and it's just this constant thing. If a kind of alien ship turned up, landed there and went, oh, I thought this, this planet was inhabited, they could just go around Antarctica for days before they found any evidence of, of human human life or even human history. And I think it's one of the sad parts about climate change that there's species like emperor penguins that breed on, on the sea ice, that if sea ice starts to be less consistent or, or thinner and then that affects their breeding seasons, these are species that can't even you know, come close to human population or you know, very, very sparsely populated islands in the sub-Antarctic is about as close as they'd ever get. Yet because of what we've done with the rest of the planet, it's going to affect them. It's not like, you know, Tasmanian tiger or something. Well, you know, yeah, we hunted them to extinction, but we're going to disrupt species that we don't even see, or that you know, 99% of people would never get to see in the wild. It's, yeah. it's a bit of a shame and it, it is such a fascinating place though.
0: The, wild, the wildest thing about every species that goes, and, um, you know, it's tough to think about, but it's important to think about, meditating on death. You never know which one's the keystone species. For all we yeah. know, it could be emperor penguins and the role that emperor penguins play in the life cycle, of those particular amount of fish controlling, that, yeah. like, the knock-on effect of those emperor, emperor penguins going out of the ecology yeah. could affect our food supply, could oh. affect like vastly have massive consequences um it's as, probably, as it's as probably more likely
2: krill but uh, yeah, yeah well
0: it is and that's the <laughs> and that's the thing i mean yeah. the thing about the antarctic is that the wildlife must be amazing
2: oh, incredible and and seeing i mean I, i've seen some pretty hairy things in my time the most scared i reckon I've, I've ever been was when we were on a and this was over on the antarctic peninsula um in a zodiac getting nudged by a killer whale and you go okay Orcas have never attacked humans in the wild. They've only ever eaten their trainers at SeaWorld. But I tell you what, when you're sitting in a you know, very small zodiac getting nudged by an orca, you go, well, there's gotta be a first time that they you know, flip me off this bloody thing and just go, oh, let's, let's eat the stupid tourist. But like, and seeing them in the wild, you go, how did we ever think putting these things in a swimming pool and was, was a smart idea. And they are just magnificent as a, as a species. And, just a, an apex predator I've never um, never seen great whites in the wild my, my sister did a cage dialing with them and, and others do but even then I, I reckon the fact that uh, great whites yeah, one of the only the only predators <laughs> killer whales those things are smart and lethal
0: since we've been talking I'm I'm thinking like how can I pitch that I get down to well, the Australian we took, station. Well, we took Dr. Carl to, down.
2: Um, he did his podcast from from Casey's station. I was down there in 2018, 19, that summer. Um, yeah, Dr. Carl went there, but that's with the ABC, so you would probably have to get away from your commitments with, with Channel 10 and all your commercial Oh, stuff. no, no, I,
0: we have, I, have, I have a fairly decent off-season. In fact, the whole summer I could, like, to go down over a summer and... And, and do an, uh, like a 10-episode, you know, mental health resilience show yeah. with the people in our community, Australian human beings who've grown yeah. up in our, you know, value system in our country and learning from them and having those stories told, abs- like, it'd be fucking cool, man. It'd be great You can pitch it. I mean, can...
2: they, they, they do have a few programs. Like, I, I don't work full-time for the Australian Antarctic Program, so you, you pitch into to the wrong guy and you right. pitch it to, to those guys. But... um uh, look, they're always open to a good idea. And I think that's one of the things with yeah. the, the program, be it the science scientific projects that yeah. get up every every summer and every every season yeah. to kind of they do stuff for NASA, they do stuff for all the different universities around Australia, and they do they've even had artists and, and others go down there and you know, I don't know how Dr. Carl's yeah. pitch came about, but they're certainly open to good ideas. So that would be something. Yeah. Interesting. And what I love it, what kind of what you're saying that what I love about the the Antarctic programs and and even the, the different expedition groups. It's in the parallel to the space programs. It's like, okay, the space programs, astronauts, they've got physics degrees, they've got mathematics degrees, they've got a different kind of mathematics degree. They've got all these different things. The Antarctic stations, it's an Armageddon scenario. It's the miners that become astronauts, not astronauts that become miners. And so you've just got, like you said, it's this great mix of just regular Australian men and women and Kiwis and Brits and, and others that have got working rights in Australia that can go there. And it becomes this fascinating melting pot of people that maybe don't have all the, the you know, qualifications and then self awareness and then all these things that astronauts have because you can be that selective for astronauts. And you go, well, no, this is just a pretty, pretty much twenty. Well, for us, it was twenty four Australians that would have otherwise probably never met each other, and we ended up stuck in an Antarctic station watching a pandemic unfold. Is one of the best scenario, like the most fascinating scenarios you could ever
0: imagine. I'm just really grateful to, to, to speak with you because the the lessons that you've learned in this environment, like it, it is such a, a, a unique place on our planet to go through. We all went through some form of lockdown in Australia, right? Um, and I'm sure you go out every day and people go, oh, lockdowns, New South Wales, don't know how easy they had it. And you're like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> like, oh, Trust me. Um, yeah. Like, to listen to you because I was uh, I did not get the call saying mate you're going to need to do another year I got the call because I was early on pre-vaccines I was exposed Mm. I was down in Melbourne I was shooting a TV show and I got uh, I got a call saying you're going to need to do another 14 we were a day from leaving uh, uh, my bags actually packed I packed my bike down packed everything and they said we're going to do another two weeks I was going to miss my son's first birthday and all kinds (sighs) of stuff and I thought I was okay with it, but on about day four, I'm wandering around the apartment and just out of nowhere, I just wanted to vomit. And I'm like, ah, that is my body reacting to the levels of cortisol and histamine because I am kind of background processing my plan, do this, do that, do this, and not actually processing the emotion. So to speak with you who went through an extreme version of that, to know that it's possible, it blows my mind. And and one
2: of the things that I find fascinating is when I get back, and and you're right, people going like, oh my God, you wouldn't know, you wouldn't understand. And yeah, sometimes, depending on the context, I will just be like, oh yeah, no, it must have been tough, mate, um, compared to what what we went through. But it's often the context. If some people had a harder time being in lockdown in Melbourne or doing 14 days quarantine than we did on Antarctic Station. Now... There's so many other layers to that in terms of mental preparation and understanding and selection and and opportunities and all these different factors. But it is sort of the same as mental health. And I see this with PTSD stuff that you don't have to have been storming the beaches at Normandy and see your best friend disintegrated by an artillery shell. And you're like, oh, but I was the best man at his wedding or my brother was killed. Some of the worst cases of PTSD come from the anxiety and the fear around people that weren't actually exposed to things, but they just lived their lives expecting to stand on a landmine for days on end and that wore them down and you can't ever trivialize these different things and it's exactly the same with people's lockdown experiences I found very quickly that there are some people that were massively scarred from things like hotel quarantine or lockdowns and you know it is you've got to be very careful to to take it seriously and go oh yeah no it, it is rough but I have been, I remember when I went, the first time I went into 14 day hotel quarantine, I was told like, you know, look out for day 10, it's, it's the toughest. I'm like, yeah, day 400 was, was, was also pretty
0: tough. So. <laughs> Mate, you, I'm grateful you said that. Before I started rolling, I said, I'm, you know, I, I, I dropped my Wolfie at, at, uh, at daycare this morning. It was 10 degrees. I'm like, it's a bit cold. Uh, but I'm like, I can't say that to you. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> and you said it's all relative. It, it is, and I still get cold now, and um,
2: I, we're running around the, the Botanical Gardens this morning. I was like, yeah, because I still, I, I don't know why, I always just kind of run in shorts and uh, a singlet or a t-shirt. If it's cold, I'll wear a t-shirt, not a singlet. And this morning, I'm like, geez, I can't feel my hands, And because it's freaking like two degrees in Melbourne in the winter. But in my mind, it's like, well, I've been to Antarctica, everywhere else is warm, but it can actually be cold.
0: Uh, running right yeah. around the
2: 10 in the morning
0: no it does it does under under underline this thing that i've been thinking about recently in that anytime, no matter what scenario you're in any your conditions outstrip your coping mechanisms you are vulnerable yep. so it doesn't matter where you did your lockdown doesn't matter if you did 530 days 37 days it doesn't matter if, if you you know got stuck for seven days if your coping mechanisms aren't strong enough to maintain yourself while those stresses hit you. Yeah. You, you can have just as bad a time. If not worse. Absolutely. And that's why you got to take it seriously. For sure. And I think
2: as well at times going oh you go i've I've dealt with all these other things but it's still okay to not be able to deal with something else and i think with you've got sort of social resilience physical resilience professional resilience you'll have all these different levels that you might be firing on and you're like i can deal with any like you on stage a great example would be you on stage you're like i could deal with anything i could deal with reading the wrong envelope i'll make that funny i'll get that right or you know the wrong singer Or you don't recognize the masked singer you're like it's uh it's, it's, it's you wow like that would be something that you can deal with but in other parts of your life you'd be like oh my god I can't I can't deal with a kid having a tantrum today be like but I'm, I'm the man I can deal with all these other things and, and that's I think important for I guess anyone to, to realize that you won't just because you're resilient in one aspect of life doesn't always mean you you'll be great you'll have triggers in other parts of your life it's it's yeah, it's, it's an interesting relationship with, um, with fear and anxiety and resilience that we all have.
0: Mate, I can't thank you enough for writing this book. <laughs> it's a compl- it's such a gift. The lessons that are in this book are just, you've shared a few of them with us today, but, man, it's something we can all use. But I really appreciate your time, David.
2: No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on and uh, good luck with the, the rest of the And I look forward <laughs> to your next book.
0: That is David Knopf. His book is 537 Days of Winter. It's a, it's a superb read, heavy, but, you know, really interesting. Really, really interesting read. But don't forget those tickets to the uh, live shows are available in the show notes of this episode. You can find that. Uh, just open your podcast app and have a look. They're right there. And um, big thanks to the team that not only picked this episode, that's been working on this show for years now. Bree Steele, my uh, researcher and producer. Andy Marr, my audio and video post-producer. Toe on the music, Rachel Barrett, the executive producer of the whole damn lot. We're back here on Wednesday. Until then, I don't know if you're still off work. You might be. You might be back to work today. If you've got one more week, ooh, get those books in, get reading, get lying down in the sun and just having a bit of a nap, and I'll see you in a couple of days.